I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. This is the Sports Edge with Rick Wolf on your flagship station for New York sports. The Fan, Sports Radio 66 and 1019 FM, WFAN, New York. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of Rick Wolf's Sports Edge. I am your host, Rick Wolf. You know, over the last few months, we have covered the pandemic and how it's affected youth, high school, and college athletes from just about every angle imaginable. But it suddenly dawned upon me that even though we have spoken with lawyers, coaches, educators, athletic directors, and even a number of the athletes themselves, we really haven't spoken to a a medical expert who has been on the front lines in the battle of treating patients with COVID. And, you know, I felt compelled to, to do this this morning because of a recent article I read in the New York Times about how some top collegiate and pro athletes uh, were concerned about their heart health due to COVID. Now, we all know about the underlying health issues when it comes to uh, coronavirus and how that makes individuals more susceptible to being infected. And worries about a heart disease called myocarditis have surfaced recently. And when I read about this, I immediately decided to reach out to Dr. Franklin Zimmerman, one of the top cardiologists in the country, and someone who is well aware of the relationship between athletics and health. And I should introduce Dr. Zimmerman. He's senior a senior attending cardiologist and director of cardiac rehabilitation at Phelps Memorial Hospital, Northwell Health in Sleepy Hollow, New York, in Westchester County. And Dr. Zimmerman, good morning. Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, thank you. Uh, let's, let's start with your own a personal experience during the pandemic. I understand that you were uh, in the trenches, in the front lines, uh, in the hospital treating patients. And I, I, what was that like? Well, I think it's pretty similar to just about what every healthcare professional would say in, in the region. We had a rough couple of months in, in March and April. And I, and I have to give my extraordinary praise to the true frontline uh, providers, the emergency room physicians, the hospitalists, the intensivists, uh, we were all in it together. The nursing staff, EMTs, uh, let's not forget our first responders, of course, our mm-hmm. police officers, EMTs, and firefighters, and, and they did an extraordinary job. What, what I think which was uh, interesting throughout this is the cooperation of, of everybody on this, uh, this treating this, this crisis. So that was really, truly uh, gratifying and, uh, because it was really, really rough there for a couple of months. Uh, we did see, uh, we have a community hospital in Phelps, but to sort of give you an example, we have a 12-bed ICU, and we, uh, we eventually peaked at between 30 and 40 ventilated patients, so we obviously had to really make some tremendous changes. Uh, Northwell did have a tremendous surge plan in place, and we cooperated with our other sister hospitals, and we were actually able to take some patients 
uh, from New York City and Rockland from all over the region. So it was really, really an example of medical cooperation. And, and uh, is, is this, I mean, all these stories, these horror stories we've heard about the difficulties in getting equipment and, and, and things like that, that was all true? You went through the same thing? Well, thankfully, thankfully, because we, we saw, Northwell saw this coming in our hospitals. Uh, we were able to have enough on hand. Now, they were in short supply, so they, frankly, give me an example, we had what was called a mask manager uh, to get our N95 masks to avoid any chance of hoarding. And you would go in, you'd literally sign your name and be, be distributed a mask. So, thankfully, Rick, uh, we did not run out of PPE uh, or uh, any material like that, and, and we needed them, for sure. We needed them. So we did not. They were in short supply, Rick, but we never ran out. Okay, but let me, let me ask you this. I mean, I, I have always assumed that COVID was primarily related to uh, respiratory issues and the lungs and not the heart. So as I mentioned a few minutes ago, I was reading about myocarditis. And first of all, what is myocarditis? And wh wh why is this a concern? How is this related to, to COVID infections? Yeah, that's a very good question there. It's, uh, I mean, this sounds like a joke, but it's not. You know, the heart bone is related to the lung bone. Uh, <laughs> so so there, there is a relationship. Um, just to step back a, a little bit, yes, um, we did see cardiac involvement. But to, to, to answer your question specifically, first, myocarditis is a specific inflammatory condition of the heart, meaning, you know, itis, inflammation, arthritis, etc. Right. Uh, so it is a specific inflammation of the virus of the heart. Now, that is actually quite rare, and, and that's, I assume that's one of the things you'll, you'll like me to speak about. Now, yes. Yes. cardiac involvement, cardiac involvement is about 20 to 30 percent cardiac injury in these COVID patients. Um, any serious infection of the lung, and these patients, were, remember, these are hospitalized or ICU patients, they're gravely ill. And we see this in all types of systemic infections, severe pneumonias, that there's some uh, leak of what we call troponin, which is a chemical that, which is an enzyme and protein that is leaked out of the heart when there is injury. Now, importantly, myocardial injury, injury, and myocarditis are two different things. Now, what's that mean? Uh, the example I will give you is that a skull fracture and a concussion are both head injuries, mm -hmm. but they're very different. So, uh, myocardial injury, which is fairly common, 20 to 30%. In fact, there was a study from Sinai that just came out of hospitalized patients from outside on New York, 36%. Uh, so, there's, there's, it's a fair amount of... Um, uh, involvement, and we did see that at our community hospital. We saw heart failure and and cardiac dysfunction. But again, as you correctly state, COVID is a primarily a pulmonary infection with systemic manifestations. Okay, now I I, I want to ask you specifically and again bring this back to the world of sports and and, and the athletes in particular. Eduardo Rodriguez, the uh, the lefty pitcher for the Boston Red Sox. He came down with COVID over the course of the summer and then was shut down for the entire season because doctors had diagnosed him with myocarditis. And, and I, you know, that, that made some headlines uh, a little bit, but I was wondering, is that, is that just rare? Is that happening? Because he had said, Rodriguez had said that, that doctors had told him that 
10 to 20 percent of all individuals who contract COVID also end up contracting myocarditis. And yeah, I think that's a misstatement there. He did appear to have true myocarditis. Uh, I was reading his story. Obviously, I'm not treating him. Yeah. But, uh, but th- what he had, he had a fairly severe case of COVID. Uh, quote, he never felt worse than this in his whole life. And then he recovered and then was back on the field, and he had some persistent systems, symptoms. And this is where I think that the, the course, the, the chance of myocarditis goes up. He had some, you know, 80% of, of all COVID-19 patients have minimal or no symptoms or very minimal symptoms. You know, they're not hospitalized, about 80%. Yep. And he had moderate symptoms. He was not hospitalized. And then a couple of weeks later, he was back on the field, Rick, and he felt breathless, he didn't feel right, and they, he went appropriately to his team physicians, and they checked him, uh, I believe, with an echocardiogram, which is an ultrasound of the heart, and found some dysfunction. Again, I'm not privy to the exact details, of course. And then they said, okay, I'm making an assumption that he had some cardiac dysfunction, and that is a diagnosis of myocarditis, meaning that the heart had been directly injured. Now, when you see that, those patients have to be shut down because they're at risk for severe complications, even sudden death. Uh, friends, we're talking with Dr. Franklin Zimmerman, uh, the noted cardiologist, uh, and I realize this is this is serious stuff. But obviously, we've been talking about COVID for some some time now, and we're looking at it now from the uh, the the. the uh, cardiac perspective uh, and then we'll open the phone lines by the way at one 337 6666 well what about myocarditis I mean is what, what is the prognosis uh, do, do uh, people get better from this uh, how, how serious is this yes the uh, I mean yes it can be very serious uh, you can have severe and, vi- and other viral illnesses do this you can have severe dysfunction leading to the need for heart transplantation now thankfully thankfully uh, that is extremely rare because viruses are ubiquitous in our environment where, yep. we, you know, we get infected with viruses all the time. But thankfully, that is very rare. Now, he should, should make a complete recovery. Now, your question to whether, what treatments are involved, that's difficult because we do not have specific treatments, you know, uh, you know for example, antibiotics against an infection that we have. We don't have powerful antiviral agents to say, okay, we're going to wipe out this infection and it's done, and then the heart will recover. So the, the treatment is supportive and allows the heart to try to recover, and supportive means treating any heart failure. Uh, not all patients with myocarditis, which, again, is the inflammation, have true congestive heart failure from that heart dysfunction. So you treat that and let your give it time so the heart can recover and that's why these patients are shut down three to six months because if they do get uh myocarditis uh premature return to sports can uh can be with lethal consequences because the heart is irritable we do see cardiac arrhythmias meaning irregular heartbeats and in 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 his case uh, rodriguez uh, he's 27 he's big strong guy but uh, they just said, oh, no, no, there's obviously what looks like uh, there's a problem here. And he was, as you said, smart enough to say, I've been cleared to come back and compete and to pitch for the Sox. Um, but then he didn't feel well. He just said something's not right. And the doctors uh, quickly diagnosed this uh, as a myocarditis. 
What about younger people? He's 27, uh, and we've heard over and over and over again that uh, primarily uh, the kids, uh, high school kids, teenagers, kids that are college athletes in their early 20s, um, they may be asymptomatic uh, with, even though they have COVID. What about how concerned should, should parents, coaches, educators be uh, in a situation where these kids are out competing and they may unknowingly have concerns uh, with, with, um, with their heart with myocarditis? I think the risk, the risk to a young person of cardiac involvement is extremely low, but that's not really the point. The point is the risk of infection is high, uh, and we're seeing that across, across the country in, in, in kids going back to college, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where, and this is a moving target, look what's going on uh, across the country of kids going back to school. Uh, and I was actually speaking to my, my brother-in-law is a professor at, uh, North Carolina and, uh, he was where they're actually at this point still playing ball. And he was making the, he told me his experience is that, uh, the undergrads came back. They had a separate dorm for COVID positive students and a separate dorm to isolate their contacts. Well, in very short order, the contacts were overwhelmed. Uh, so the, to, to summarize that point is that the risk of severe disease for a young person in COVID-19 is extremely, is extremely low. Not zero. Look what we saw in the children, the, the Kawasaki's like, uh, like situation just a month or so ago, uh, which was devast- be devastating. But the risk of asymptomatic or, or minimally symptomatic infection, that's high. And remember, this is uh, this is math. You, know, you get one infection infecting two to three other people. Well, you start doubling the rate of infection. Look exactly what we we went through, and this thing explodes across the country. Uh, so, infection rate in young people high, asymptomatic, and remember, they are going to transmit it to their older, whether it's coaches or teachers or other members of their family. That's the real risk there, you know, for the young people. So we got to take this seriously. And and just to uh, echo what you just said, you, you didn't say maybe or they possibly. You said they're going to transmit this disease to to older people. I mean, I, I mean, as as, as somebody who is obviously a, you know a cardiologist who does this every day and and knows this knows this turf so well. Uh, you, clearly, you're concerned about this. You don't have the sense that this is going away soon, and, and that, that uh, parents and coaches should be very concerned. Uh, absolutely. We cannot let down our guard. If your listeners take anything away from this, yes, the infection rate in New York State, thanks to the draconian measures, some say, uh, that were put in place, guess what? They work. They absolutely work. Again, we don't. There's a lot of very smart people and, and terrific companies that are working on antivirals and vaccines, of course. But right now, we don't have much. We have supportive care. Uh, and we sure as heck don't want to go through what we did just a couple of months ago. Remember history. I mean, there were three yep. waves of the 1819 influenza pandemic. We, we, we can't have that. Uh, and the good news is, is that um, these protective, these relatively simple protective measures work. Uh, we, you know, we early on, people got infected. One of my partners got it. Uh, with nurses at, at Phelps Hospital got it. They are, now they're back to work. Everyone's back. One of my receptionists got it. Uh, 
and and now thankfully we're all doing obviously doing the right thing and knock on wood uh, the infection rate is very very low but no we cannot let down our guard we're talking this morning with Dr. Franklin Zimmerman, uh, cardiologist at Phelps Hospital in, in Westchester County, and um, I, I do want to talk a little bit about, obviously, uh, what happened 100 years ago uh, with the Spanish flu pandemic, because there are some parallels there, and of course, we will take calls at one eight seven seven three three seven sixty six sixty six. Let me take a timeout. When I return, I will go right to the calls. Stay with me. Back here on the Sports Edge, we're talking this morning with noted cardiologist Dr. Franklin Zimmerman about heart risks uh, to athletes, uh, obviously at all ages, but uh, we're going to focus a bit here on high school and college uh, athletes uh, when it comes to COVID and uh, heart concerns. Uh, and we're going to take your calls, of course, at one eight seven seven three three seven sixty six sixty six. Let's start off with uh, with Rob over in Lake Success. Hey, Rob. Good morning. You're on the fan. Hey, Rick. Always a pleasure. Me and, me and Coach Jack are texting away, and this is great. Doctor, I happen to be a podiatrist um, and was on the front line as well as I did contract. I did get the virus, one of the earlier people. Mm-hmm. My symptoms were the cough. I had a sore throat. Uh, initially, I had a low-grade fever, and I thought it was the flu. Got checked for the flu. It came up negative and just had this wacky, dry cough. Um, which lasted for two weeks, and I'm almost 60 years old. But the thing that made me a little different, that I always over, overcame it so quickly, was I'm a distance runner, and I actually trained once the fever broke. I trained through it, and I think that helped me get through the virus. Um, I'm doing great. I, it, 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 the only thing I will say is, on your end, uh, afibrillation, okay, atrial fibrillation, which is something as distance runners we can get, and kids as well as athletes can maybe possibly have to look into that. Is this something that the kids uh, should be aware of as well, you know, if they, if they do contract it? I know everybody talks about the kids, you know, it, it can not be as, as bad or more of a benign disease, but a lot of kids are getting sick on your end. Um, is this something you're concerned with that the, the, the young, the young ones can get, uh, th- this condition from, from the, um, the virus? Yeah, that's a good question. By the way, I'm glad you're feeling better. Thank goodness. Oh, I'm doing great. I mean, yeah. I, I'm going out for a run after Rick's show is over, but I always have <laughs> to tune in, you know, but anyway. Good for you. I'm sure you take good care of your feet there. They're yeah, running in good <laughs> shoes. <laughs> the, uh, but, but all kidding aside, you are correct. We saw a, a lot of atrial fibrillation, but it wasn't in the young people, uh, uh, doctor. The, um, the, we saw atrial fibrillation in the patients. You know, again, the joke, the heart bone's connected to the lung bone. So when, they, right. when any time there's an acute pulmonary illness, uh, the heart, of course, is irritable, and we saw a lot of atrial fibrillation. Now, you also bring up another point, just which is a, a different topic, that yes, athletes, long-distance runners, atrial fibrillation is quite common. Uh, a number of basketball, NBA basketball players have had atrial fibrillation, uh, uh, a number of pro baseball players, but yes, the, indis- the distance sports. That's a subject, subject, subject uh, re- regarding cardiac uh, remodeling in, in athletics, but but uh, you are absolutely correct. We saw a lot of arrhythmias. Now, whether that was a manifestation of specific cardiac injury or was it related to the general lack of oxygen from the pulmonary infection, we don't know. 
One last question I want to ask you, for going with me as well as other athletes that are going to potentially get this virus, because it's just still out there and people are not taking it, I think, across the country seriously. We are, we are in New York. The fact that I had this, I, I'm wondering, potentially fibrosis of the lungs, okay? Now, I, I don't really feel it when I finished, you know, um, after the, after the uh, illness passed. I was having some blood in my sputum, and I was concerned about that, and I know runners can get that. But I don't usually get that, okay? Uh, is this something, are you finding fibrosis in the lungs as well on some of these elderly patients? And should the kids be aware and take this much more seriously? Yeah, that's, uh, that is one of the concerns. That, but, but that it really was in our, our most ill patients that, uh, I mean, when you look at the CT scans, they were a mess. I mean, thank goodness you didn't have that because uh, you weren't sick enough, thank goodness, and recovered. But in our sickest patients... Yes, we are seeing some patients that are having some persistent shortness of breath, and you have to make the assumption that they are going to have some fibrosis. You know, scar. That was the, the after the initial inflammation that there was lung scarring. Now, hopefully, it's not debilitating, but but you you are correct. We are seeing that. Hey, Rob. The good questions. Uh, not surprisingly, thank you for for checking in this morning. It's greatly appreciated. Uh, let's let's move on. Let's go to uh, let's go to Frank and Astoria. Frank, good morning. You're next up on the fan. Yes, uh, good morning, gentlemen. Yeah. Uh, I, I would just like to say that uh, I can never prove in that I had COVID. Uh, it was back in November. I had one of the symptoms, which is uh, I never had this in my life. Uh, it's uh, it's the, the uh, tingling uh, and the paralyzation of your tongue and your mouth. And uh, for the first time in my life, I couldn't taste. Uh, food. I, I could only swallow food because uh, I knew I had to eat or else I would get sick. And the fever that uh, curtailed it was uh, severely high. Uh, in past years, you know, I would have the flu and my mother would prepare a penicillin formula. But for this, this time, I decided not to take the penicillin formula. And somehow the fever, which is 100 and 203, dissipated. But it, it was, uh, I couldn't prove it. It's November of 2019, and the only person, or it couldn't, it's not a person, it's a feline, uh, it's a, uh, uh, a cat friend of my alumnus from high school would jump on my bed and would purr very loudly, like he, because it's a hermaphrodite uh, cat, would scream and say that, you know, because when cats scream real loud, they're probably indicating that maybe you're going to die, you pass on, we don't know why cats sometimes meow in well, certain ways, but uh, it was terrible because I've never had those types of symptoms. Frankly, and, uh, I, I just want to tell the doctor, yeah. uh, you know, high school students, they, they don't have nurses that can actually, because I came from the Catholic High School Athletic Association, do they treat in different uh, school environments this a problem in a different way? Because it, it, I do know what assist, asymptomatic symptoms are. Uh, you know, I'll just uh, you know to, uh, you know chime in to answer a little bit. The, uh, it sounds like I mean I'm not a primary care physician, so I won't comment on that. But just to say that what we do know is that the virus was not detected in this. It started in you know in China, Wuhan, China in uh, in December. That is the uh, ostensibly the start of it, and it did not arrive in this country till a month or so later. It went to Europe, of course, first. So I, I have no doubt that you had some form of viral illness, but it was on very unlikely that that was uh, COVID. 
Yeah. Frank, thank you for, for checking in this morning, and I hope that you're feeling better. Uh, and uh, interesting that your, your cat or your friend's cat was able to sort of diagnose this concern. Uh, you know, before we get back to the calls, uh, Dr. Zimmerman, I, I do want to mention that uh, you wrote a terrific piece, a different column about the healing power of baseball that ran in the New York Times, and you drew comparisons between the Spanish flu epidemic uh, back in 1918 and with today. And, and friends, if, if you haven't seen the piece, I urge you to, uh, to just Google it. Just Google the healing power of baseball and you'll find it right away. Uh, but my, my question, Dr. Zimmerman, is the fact that most people today don't seem to realize or acknowledge the fact that it took not just a few months, but it took three years to get through the Spanish flu uh, back then, and that face masks were the main deterrent back then, as they are today, and social distancing. But from what, I, what I've read about the Spanish flu back then, and people, particularly in cities like Boston and Philadelphia, where we're especially hit hard, uh, the mayors would come out after a few months and say, well, we finally have uh, uh, basically uh, flattened the curve, and you're free not to wear masks again, and within a month, everybody was sick again. What are the lessons can we learn from that? And, and maybe you said before the break that you know, f- social distancing and face masks. Maybe this is a, these are simple requests. Maybe they're too simple for us to follow. Maybe we just don't take it seriously enough. I, I think there's two great points here. Even before getting to the history, I want to make and thank you. I want to make one real easy concept for people to understand. Think of you know. I love to use analogies because you know people and cliches because they're easy to remember and but. Thinking about this virus, it it depends upon how much virus you're exposed to and for how long. So think about this. It's almost as if you had a can of spray paint. You know, if you're infected, you've got a can of spray paint. And you have someone who's on the other side of your lawn, and you could be spraying all day long, and they're unlikely, not impossible, but they're unlikely to get sprayed with paint. Now, if you you and 10 other people got in an elevator, and you have that spray paint, just about everybody's going to get hit with a lot of that paint. Mm-hmm. So the greater, the more time, the, the closer you are, the more time you spend, the more likely you're going to get. And if somebody put a mask or a piece of cloth in front of that spray can, well, think about it. This is not a difficult concept. It's less likely you're going to get sprayed with paint. And here's the difference of this analogy, though. You're in that elevator. You don't know who's got the can of spray paint. <laughs> so when people are thinking, should I wear the mask, should I not? Wear the mask. Try not to get sprayed with paint. Now, part two of your question, so I hope people can take that away a, a bit, is to, to think about how to, how to wear their masks and, so, and why social distancing works. Now, the analogy, the comparison between 1918 and now was, is unbelievable and i would encourage some people if they if you have not read the new york times bestseller the great influenza by john barry uh, please do so uh fellow brown alum by the way the end and, <laughs> and also you went up to you you went to another college up the road called harvard rick i know yeah. uh the um <laughs> uh the um uh, and Skip Desjardins uh, also wrote a terrific book called uh, September 1918, War, Plague, and the World Series, which are great books. Uh, but uh, the parallels, uh, the reason I, I like history a bit, and a buddy of mine, Alan Railsberg, sent me a picture uh, of the, from the, the uh, 
National Baseball Hall of Fame, uh, a, a picture from an, an exhibition game in Pasadena, California, where um, the umpire and the batter and, and the catcher were all wearing masks. As were most, as were those uh, watching the grandstand, and I and I said, "Hmm, uh, this is interesting." So I investigated, um, went back and read those books, and uh, did some research, and then I um, you know, sort of made the comparisons. Remember, at the time, uh, back in May, we didn't have any sports at all, and we were in the middle of this lockdown. And frankly, there was I think it was affecting psychologically. Uh, that's some of your expertise, Rick, I know that the people were sort of confined to quarters, and it was affecting not only their, pers- their physical health, but their mental health. So I made comparisons of how important sports, and baseball in particular, uh, are to the American psyche. And it's, it's not simply just a game. It's important. Uh, No question. I think we all feel the same way, and that's why we're so eager to return to a sense of normalcy, to return to the so-called good old days of of watching kids go out and compete and play and play team sports. But yes, we have to do it within the uh, parameters of of making sure that we basically corral this virus. I mean, just uh, this past week, uh, a high school athletic director in Utah he, he literally stopped a, a, a high school football game uh, until everybody in the stands put on a mask and they had to sit in seats that were at least six feet apart. Wow. And I, I was, you know, was, yeah, good for the AD to have the courage to try and protect the fans who didn't seem to think that the rules of safety applied to them. And uh, he, he was dead serious. He got on the, on the, on the PA and said, look, we're, we're going to stop the game right now until everybody just you got to put your mask on and you got to sit uh, for, away from everybody or we're not going to continue. And they waited until people uh, basically complied. Um, I think we're going to see more of those kind of uh, play stoppages at the high school level as the year begins around here as schools uh, start playing sports again. But, you know, it, it's, just, um, it's just so strange to me even now as I walk around uh, where I live and I see kids t- still playing uh, travel baseball or softball, lacrosse, whatever, soccer, and I don't see any social distancing or masks at all. And it's just like, come on, folks. Do you think somehow you are, you know, are, uh, you know, in, in, are not uh, susceptible to getting this disease? It's just very, very strange and very frustrating. It's, uh, you couldn't be more right. You know, again, a cliche, you know, denial is not just a river in Egypt. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> Uh, and you know, and people, you know, you know, it doesn't hurt. You know, you can't again, you can't see the spray paint. You know, it's it's a silent killer. And again, you know, I tell people, I said, look, again, I'm using a lot of cliches and analogies because I think I hope people will remember it. They said, you know, if there's, you know, if there's a dam that's leaking upstream, I tell people, don't wait until your feet get wet to move to higher ground. It's too late. Yeah. Too yep. late. So start early and this is look here's here's what's frustrating to me as as a physician and as a person we didn't have a chance to intervene this thing hit us in march like a ton of bricks this thing was upon us and we had to deal with all the consequences uh what i don't understand across the country is that other areas of the country saw what we went through in new york and have chosen not to learn the lesson. It's unbelievable. It's it's just mind-boggling. Like 
what what were you guys not paying attention? You think this is all a hoax? You think it's made up? It's just nuts. All right, let me let me take a time out here. We're talking this morning, obviously about COVID and and what parents and coaches and educators should know about this when it comes to kids and sports in particular. We're talking with Dr. Franklin Zimmerman, uh, the noted cardiologist. Let me take a time out. When I return, we'll go back to the calls at one 337 6666 I invite you to check out my website at AskCoachWolf.com. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at hashtag AskCoachWolf. We're talking this morning with Dr. Bud Zimmerman, one of the nation's top cardiologists about COVID and related issues to one's heart. And uh, friends, if you haven't, if you missed the first part of the show, I would definitely suggest you go back and listen to it. Uh, you can go to WFAN.com and listen to the podcast uh, because it, this is important stuff here to be sure uh, and uh, we're taking your calls at one 337 6666 you know I sort of know the answer to this question but I need to ask it anyhow before we get back to our callers clearly if you're a sports parent and you're trying to decide right now uh, whether or not you let your kid go back and play at the high school level uh, or modified school level or travel team, Dr. Zimmerman, what would you advise to them? Hi. I think that it really depends on the sport. Uh, you know, they're the low-risk sports, and these are easy. You know, the golf and tennis, the answer is yes. You know, that, that's easy to maintain uh, the social distancing. And, and, and again, it's, you're managing the risk here. Baseball, uh, if you do everything right, uh, it's, that would be considered a moderate risk sport. Mm-hmm. The, the football, basketball, wrestling, those are the tough ones. You know, the, it's, it's, and they're struggling with this at the, at the high school, certainly, and they're struggling with the collegiate and professional level. Now, the pros are, you know, they can really mandate what their teams do. Colleges, their students, ostensibly students first. Uh, athletes second, and their students will be students. If they did everything right, um, I think they could probably be pretty safe. Uh, well, with, yeah, we know with obviously the NBA and the NHL being in a bubble, but they have the pockets to do that. Right. Uh, we've seen the collegiate, you know, the Big Ten, uh, the Pac-12. They have money too, but they they obviously have decided no, we're not. We don't take that chance. We're not going to take that risk. At the high school level, nobody has the the wherewithal to do all the the, the daily testing that the the pros do. So this is just very curious. And as I said, we see a lot of kids who play travel sports, and I just don't see a lot of masks or social distancing. I just see kids playing sports uh, like it was good old days. Yeah, I think that's a problem. I really do. And, you know, if you, if, as much as we want our kids to play sports and have a good time and have a wonderful high school and, and, and middle school experience, again, looking back through history, um, when my father was 17, he was on a troop ship, and people were, they were 18, they were trying to kill him. Uh, let's put it in perspective. If we miss a travel season for people, for our children and, and the adult safety, so be it. Yep, yep. I hear you. Uh, that, that's, uh, let's continue with our calls, and I think that's well said. Sometimes, you know, the fact is you got to put things in priority. Somebody has to make a grown-up decision here. And I said, look, I'm sorry, uh, but it, it, just for the safety and, and health and welfare of you and your, your peers and friends, I'm sorry. It may be that we're just not going to be able to play sports this year. It's as simple as that. It's horrible to say, horrible to think about, 
but it really is something that we have to realize that we're looking at the numbers uh, continue to rise, that the death rate continues to rise around the country, and not just with older people, but with younger people as well. It's getting to be very, very scary. Let's go to uh, Jack Smithland over in Fairlawn. We're curious to get uh, Jack's thoughts about our conversation this morning. Jack? How are you, Rick and Dr. Zimmerman? It's it's great listening to you and and you know I'm like like every Sunday morning I'm sitting here watching a softball game and like Rick mentioned there's nobody wearing masks there's nobody social distancing you know and and in order to do the thing safe like you said Dr. Zimmerman we have to and Dr. Rob you know tells me the same thing and you know he texts me the same thing and I agree. We have to be responsible, but we're not being responsible. I mean, I'm watching a game right now. Nobody's wearing a mask. Nobody's social distancing. They're sitting, the kids are sitting right on a bench together. It's it's just amazing on that we're, we're, we're taking so many chances with this virus. But reading a little bit and studying and being a health teacher for over 44 years, you know, this disease uh, is something that I believe, and I'm, I might be wrong, but the inflammation of the heart um, or even the arteries and veins around the heart can cause scar tissue to build up. And once scar tissue is built up, there's only one way of removing it, and that's surgery. So that's a long-term, you know, a life. It, it'll stay with you for life, which causes the heart to work harder and has to beat faster in order to get the same amount of blood and oxygen through the body. So this is a disease that even though it might not hit you in a way that shows all these signs, it will be something that will last, you know, the rest of your lifetime. Is, is that a true statement, Doc? The, uh, you know, you are correct. Thankfully, cardiac involvement is infrequent, you know, severe cardiac involvement. Now, we did see it primarily in our hospitalized patients and in our ICU patients and our patients on ventilators. The most severe, that's where the cardiac involvement, and, and frankly, we had a high death rate. Uh, in those patients. Now, for better or for worse, they were elderly. Uh, in our own practice, the patients that we lost, uh, it, got, it was terrible, um, but they were patients in their 80s and, and 90s. Those are the ones we lost. Uh, germane to Rick's show is in sports parenting. Thankfully, that cardiac involvement is very, very rare in a young person. But again, asymptomatic transmission, and it can happen. And again, uh, Eduardo Rodriguez, uh, he, he got it, and he's done for the season. And there, as, as I read, there were a couple of other ball players, some Georgia Tech quarterback and, uh, and uh, another ball, another, I think it was Indiana, uh, uh, lineman was affected and was quite ill. Yep. Uh, is that right, Rick? And so it, it can affect. And now it's, it, thankfully, it's rare, but it's not zero. So you know what? Think about this. If you're a parent and – and you're sitting at a game right now. Hope you have a mask on, by the way. If you're sitting at a game, uh, um, and to let those kids play, let them let them sit apart from each other with masks on. And you, we as parents, have responsibility as parents and coaches and teachers. Put your mask on because these social distancing and masks they work. Yeah, I, I, it's such a simple. 
I don't want to say a universal solution, but certainly it's something that uh, we all know have been drilled every day for several months. And Jack, uh, Jack, thank you for the call this morning. Always appreciate it. The, the fact is that, that we have to do this, and, and particularly now as, as school is on the horizon and, and, and kids are going back and thinking about playing team sports. I mean, it just, I know the, um, the CDC and the National Federation of High Schools uh, put out their guidelines about which sports are low risk, which ones are medium, which ones are high risk, and, and clearly football is a, a high risk sport uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, but I, 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 I would also put, I know they said soccer and, and basketball were sort of medium risk. But I'm thinking, geez, I don't know how that is. I mean, soccer, you're, you're running, you're marking your player, you're breathing on each other's face, you're contact. I mean, how can that be just a medium-risk sport? And the same with, uh, with basketball. If you're, you're, if you're guarding a player and you're close to them, um, you know, it just seems that we want to be very, very cautious about this. And uh, I, I just don't uh, – if the idea is to protect ourselves – uh, that this seems the, the obvious way to do this. Put the mask on, you know, keep social distance, and, and go from there. Dr. You know, Zimmerman, it, what, do, what do you think about all this? And, you know, absolutely. As we mentioned a few minutes ago, if, if there, I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge sports fan, and I'd love to watch the game, but if we have to make some adjustments that are painful and nuisances, you know, again, so be it. You know, you know going back through history, remember, um, Rick and I, you and I were talking a little bit um, you know, the 1919 Stanley Cup was not played. It was not completed. You look on the Stanley Cup, and both teams are listed there. So they had to make it this, because the, the players were, now none of us were around then, but the, the, the players were devastated. They were all homesick and in, or in hospitals. They could not complete the Stanley Cup. Uh, football games, they played a, a, in 18 and 19, they played a fraction college. They played a fraction of the normal schedule. It's just surprising to me that people don't uh, come back to these and say, you understand, this happened before and we had to make sacrifices and people, uh, athletes lost uh, perhaps a year of their best uh, athletic prowess because of the, of the Spanish flu. But the good news is that they were able to go back and play a year or two later. And they weren't dead. I mean, that, that's the reality of it. And, and we, you know, we keep hearing Dr. Fauci talk about there might be a, a, a spike again uh, come the winter, uh, especially as the, as the flu comes around. I mean, it's just like, friends, let's, let's be realistic here. This may not happen. Nobody wants to be the, the bearer of bad news, but this is what we're looking at. Let's continue on with our calls. Let's go to, uh, to Ron up in Connecticut. Hey, Ron, good morning. You're next up on The Fan. Uh, good, mo- good morning. I don't want to take a lot of time. My question is this. What about wearing gloves when you go di- to the different uh, um, gyms and places like that? How does the virus get down on the surface or something, not only through the air, but do you pick it up from not wearing gloves? I'll listen to your comments. Yeah, Thank good you. question. Thanks, Ron. Uh, Doc, what about that? I mean, we you know early on people were saying you had to wear uh, gloves and masks, and now we see that gloves... Still is suggested, but not as it was before. And then there's always the debate about how long the, the, the virus lasts on surfaces and that kind of thing. Yeah, again, not being an expert in this, but, but I will say this. If, if you wash your hands, that's fine. Uh, the, uh, I don't wear gloves. Uh, some people do. Some, some of the docs in our offices do. Uh, I do not, I, but I wash my hands before I see the patient, after I see the patient, many times during when I see the patient. And, the, the way it gets from your from a, a surface 
to your hands is by touching, obviously. And then the way it gets into your, your respiratory tract is because you, then you touch a mucous membrane. You touch your nose. You touch your, your, put your fingers to your mouth somehow or, or, your, or your eyes. Uh, then it gets into the system. So if you're, and remember, if you're wearing a glove, it would be on the glove. You'd have to take the gloves off before mm-hmm. you touched anything. So the answer to the question, in my view, in my view, is that gloves are not necessary, but hand hygiene is. Yeah, and I think, again, uh, we know we've been through this a lot for several months. People are just obviously getting fatigued and weary, but clearly these are essential and important aspects uh, of, of personal hygiene to protect oneself and, and basically one's kids as well. I mean, it's as simple as that. We have to be, let's face it, we have to be responsible about this. Uh, otherwise, it's, it's just going to continue on. Let's go quickly to, uh, let's go to Louie and Lindbergh. Hey, Louie, good morning. You're on the fan. Hey, Rick. Great speaking with you, Dr. Zimmerman. Great show today. Uh, the colleges now, I, I've been coaching college soccer and lacrosse for over 30 years. The colleges now are telling the students to come back to college. Yep. Once they arrive there, now they're telling them to go back home. Yep. And uh, my question is, uh, uh, this is what I believe. I believe everything is a high risk if you don't wear a mask. But uh, my question to you today is this. Should our athletes sit out until a vaccine is available for covid What's your opinion? Good question. Thanks, Lou. What do you think, Doctor? Well, you know, that's, that's a public health decision. Uh, it would be, I think it would be presumptuous for me to make a broad statement mm-hmm. like that because it, uh, every situation is, is different. Uh, the, the way those decisions are made is by, uh, again, depending, is basing it on the risk of infection. If you've got an extraordinarily low risk in your college, in your, your town or state, and remember, students come from all over. So that's what's, what's a very difficult situation. Uh, a local school might be able to make a decision if they could guarantee that the students practice proper social distancing. The problem has been is that the, the practice has not followed through with the theory. The theory was great that they come back and do everything, and look what we're seeing. So the caller is asking the question, um, if everybody did everything right, maybe, but here's the facts on the ground. Nobody's yep. doing everything. Not nobody, but a large percentage of our students are not doing everything right. So we're paying the consequences. So that's why it's a tough decision. Uh, and as we, as we uh, you know, unfortunately, we're running out of time here. And, and, and friends, we are talking with Dr. Franklin Zimmerman, a senior attending cardiologist, director of cardiac rehabilitation at Phelps Memorial Hospital, uh, Northwell Health in Sleepy Hollow up in Westchester County. So as we, we wrap this up, I'm just curious, what are your thoughts? What, what do you see? What's going to happen this fall in terms of sports, uh, kids, uh, and this whole virus? What, what, what's, your, what's, your, what's your instinct on this? Uh, my instinct is that this is going to be a uh, – see, this season, this season is going to be one that's uh, unique, uh, unlike any other, but, uh, and I think things are going to get canceled. Uh, I think in small situations, it can be very successful. Frankly, we've shown that in New York, uh, and we can beat down this virus with our, if people are doing the right things. Uh, I don't think, and this, yes, this is, has been a failure of leadership, that it's going to be a big problem across this country uh, um, for the next number of months. Uh, that may change. Um, but I am enthusiastic and encouraged and frankly impressed 
Uh, vaccines usually take a long time, but I think we are going to have one or and, and probably more, we're, we are going to have more than one vaccine because they're targeting different aspects of the virus. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to find out which uh, one. And frankly, you say, how could that be? Well, you can think back. The first shingles vaccine was good and the next one was better. So people were getting both. So this is, you know, people should think back. Oh, I, I may need more than one vaccine. Uh, I don't know yet whether we're going to need to get a coronavirus vaccine every year. If that's the case, so be it. <laughs> I'm all in. Uh, uh, so, so, but, so I, I think that you know, and when, when people, when they get despondent, I, I do tell them this. I say, look, you, you know, humans, we're, we're resilient. And, you know, the, you know, the Black Death uh, in the Middle Ages was, was followed by the Renaissance. Uh, 1919 <laughs> was followed by the Roaring Twenties. We're, we're going to get through this both medically and socially. I have great confidence of that. Well, but that may take the spring. I hear you. Dr. Zerman, I have just uh, want to personally salute you and thank you for all the, uh, the difficult and dangerous work you've done to save lives during this pandemic. And of course, uh, I very much thank you for coming on, uh, coming on this morning to, to share your insights. And again, I thank you so much. We'll talk to you again real soon. You bet. Always a pleasure. Rick. That is Dr. Franklin Zimmerman. Okay. Now, as I wrap up this week, I want to pay tribute to my longtime friend and colleague uh, in the world of sports parenting, Bob Bigelow, passed suddenly a few days ago. If you don't know, Bob Bigelow was an all-Ivy, six-foot-seven, sharp shooting forward at Penn back in the mid-70s. Was a first-round draft choice in the NBA. Played several years in the league before retiring and then going back to school for an MBA. And I have to tell you, Bob was always in tip-top physical shape. He looked like he could easily handle himself at the age of 66 in a full-court basketball game. Uh, But he was recently diagnosed with some heart issues, and apparently he succumbed to a heart attack this past week. After uh, playing in the NBA and in uh, a great uh, business career, Bob became a passionate advocate when it came to kids and sports. He did thousands of sports parenting presentations over the years. And if you ever heard him and his booming baritone voice, you know how absolutely passionate he was about how we need to confront and change parental perceptions in the world of sports. Along the way, he authored two books uh, on the subject, Just Let the Kids Play and Youth Sports, Still Failing Our Kids and How to Really Fix It. They are both wonderful books, and and they're very much worth the read. Uh, Bob Bigelow was survived by his wife, Nancy, the longtime head swimming coach at Tufts University, and their two sons, David and Stephen. I have to tell you, over the years, Bob has been on the sports edge many, many times. He was a true pioneer in this field, and his presence uh, will be missed, seriously missed. He's just a tremendous loss to us all. Okay, that's going to do it for me in this edition of the Sports Edge this morning. My thanks to Ed Arzuman. Uh, Please stick around for Ed Randall. He is up next, and I'll see you next week right here on the Sports Edge. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with h track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. 
Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 